0: hey will it's been a long time
1: it's been a minute
0: it's been been a freaking minute minute. how are you doing
1: (laughs) i'm doing good i'm really excited for today's episode i think it's a a culmination of a lot of things we've been thinking about over the last few days uh, last few weeks and actually frankly last few years so yeah we're going to talk to some pretty cool individuals excited I want to begin by acknowledging that I am situated today and presenting from the Musqueam Squamish, Swelltooth Coast Salish territories, as well as the Kikat Nation. Just recently I learned Still Creek Drive, where my, my office is located, was actually a, a, a really uh, popular indigenous gathering spot, very, very lush greenery. And recently it's undergone some pollution and, and, and sort of being situated on on a, a on a piece of land with that much history and, and thinking about how. You know, my business is run literally on Indigenous land. has been an eye-opening experience. So I wanted to share that with you before we started today's episode.
0: And as for me, I've been going around, as you may recognize from some of my previous episodes as well. Right now, I am in the Niagara region, and I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, and I apologize for mispronouncing that, and Anishinaabe peoples many of whom continue to live and work here today. And this territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties and is within the land protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. And it is a beautiful region, it is a beautiful summer, and I'm very, very thankful to be here. All right, Will, so why don't you do a little bit of an intro for our guests today?
1: Absolutely. They're gonna give their full bios themselves, but I want to talk about how they represent international student advising, the new generation of international student advisors, a very diverse and energetic and, I would say, student-focused perspective. They represent schools in the Western and Central Eastern Canada, so we have a bit of an East and West thing, which we'll get to in a little bit, and their day jobs are to help international student advisors. We have one who's an RCIC and one who's a lawyer, actually a former uh, colleague uh, of our alma mater, the University of Ottawa. And they've been helping students transition to permanent residence, to help them with their initial study permit applications, and assist them in all of their student needs. So I'm very, very excited. Uh, it's a time when uh, student assistance and immigration is in high demand. It's the talk of a town. So let's bring in Mayuri and Ravneet.
0: Hello, Mayuri yep. and Ravneet. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. So why don't we do a little bit of an intro? Let's start with Ravneet coming in from west to
1: east.
3: Thank you, LJ. Hello, everyone. My name is Ravneet Panej. I am a regulated community immigration consultant located in um, Alberta. I am doing a little bit of traveling this weekend, but uh, so I'm currently in Windsor, Ontario, and I would like to start off with a land acknowledgement. I would like to respectfully acknowledge that the land on which I'm today is the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy of First Nations, comprised of the Ojibwe the Odawa, and the Potawatomi peoples. And I'm uh, happy to be here and uh, really looking forward to the discussion that we're going to have today. Thank you.
1: Wonderful. And just a quick note about Ravneet, she's on top of her immigration game. I, I remember giving a presentation recently and right after, I think a couple minutes after the presentation, Ravneet emailed me and I was like, you got something wrong. And I was like, yes, we need to have Ravneet on her show. She knows her laws. Uh, and, and again, a, a testament to the incredible work that immigration consultants are doing across the country. So next, I have the pleasure of introducing Mayori. Mayori is a former colleague of LJ and ours from the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. So Mayori, please introduce yourself and and tell the audience what's up.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much for for having uh, me, uh, Lou and Will. and so nice to meet Ravnita as well um, and meet the fellow international student advisor. Awesome to be on the show. Total fangirl of the podcast and definitely tune in to the episodes. So my name is Mayuri and I am an immigration lawyer, licensed to practice in Ontario. And I am speaking to you today from Toronto. And so in Toronto, we acknowledge, I acknowledge that we're on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabe, Chippewa, and Haudenosaunee and the Wendat people. And of course, we know that it's home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. So I'm grateful to be here and to share uh, insights about international student advising and the journey that international students are facing here in Canada.
0: All right, so what's great about today's episode is that we have two incredible South Asian advocates, a lawyer and an immigration consultant, and Ravni, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're working both in the complexities of post-secondary introduction, and as Will mentioned, what a world it is today. A lot of new things, not just because of COVID, mostly because it's brought about that it's a very popular vehicle to come into Canada. Now, I was wondering if, uh, could each of you tell us how you got to your respective positions working in international education? How about we start with Mayuri?
2: Great, yeah, so I'm fairly new to international student advising and working in the post-secondary education sector and international education in general. Prior to this, I was practicing refugee law primarily. And I did that for about three years. And I've always wanted to go into higher education. And um, the international student advising position, I think, presented a really unique opportunity for me to continue practicing immigration law. Of course, a whole other area of immigration law that I'm now exposed to, but still, still be part of do something in public legal education and advising, which I'm really passionate about helping people in general kind of decipher this the mysticism of the law and support international students through that process. So that's really uh, what attracted me to the position and where I am at, at York University. So today I'm, I'm here to happy to share some of the insights that I'm learning, having been in the position now for just under 10 months. So it's also really interesting if I could have picked I couldn't have picked a more interesting time to to join (laughs) this role and and learn about it. So it's been really, really fascinating. And yeah, so that's
3: how I got here.
0: How about you, Ravneet? How's it like out west? And how'd you get started?
3: So I actually came to Canada um, about a little over 10 10 years ago, Not not as an international student. I moved here with my family, but we did go through the immigration process ourselves, navigating... The paperwork, the the immigration application process at that time, and I moved to Canada. Um, even though I was not an international student, I did go through the transitioning phase of coming into a new country, having to adjust to a new environment, and going through to, to the to that to that phase where I had to settle in 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 a, in a new country. And at that time, that's where while while I was doing my undergraduate degree in Adventure Alberta, I started working as a as an administrative assistant at an immigration consulting firm at that point in time. And that's kind of something that got me interested in, in the immigration advising sector. So started back in 2012 and just been at the immigration consulting firm. And all of a sudden, when I got into kind of the interesting facts, learning about immigration law and worrying about different aspects of immigration applications. And I think the joy that we got after assisting a client and realizing the, the happiness that, that the client got after achieving their immigration dream of coming to Canada and helping them from beginning up until the end was kind of something that really kind of gave me a passion of supporting other immigrants, newcomers, um, students, uh, per se, at that time. And that was just kind of like the kind of setting the, the stage at that point in time. And back in 2018, I got the opportunity to work at the University of Alberta. And that was kind of like the turning point in my career where I got to experience the the role as an international advisor. So And the hats we wear as an immigration consultant versus an international advisor in a post-secondary environment is is quite different in terms of that. It's not just immigration advising uh, when we look at advising international students in in a post-secondary environment. So... When I started working back at the U of A, following the year after working at the U of A, I started a, new, a position at the University of British Columbia. So I worked there for a year uh, with the amazing immigration advising team at, at UBC at the Vancouver campus. And we just recently, I've started uh, my role as an international advisor at the University of Vancouver. So I've been working as, a, as an international advisor for the last few years, and it's just that It amazes you in terms of the the, the complex natures of inquiries that we get from time to time from students and making sure that we are kind of their their support system here anytime they they run into any problems and they have a way to connect with, with, with an advisor that can give them that support at the institution rather than them going outside institution and trying to find a person that can answer their questions regarding immigration. So it's just that having that passion of helping students and helping them realize their immigration dream from before they move to Canada, assisting them with their initial study permits once they're here, helping them bring their family members, and then helping them to the post-graduation work permit applications, and then help them realize their, their permanent residency dream while they're here. So I think that's kind of, in a nutshell, just kind of what drives us as advisors in terms of helping the students realize their dreams and just getting getting happiness and uh, kind of contentment out of seeing our students achieve their success and their dreams while they're they're, they start their journey and um up until the end
1: incredible hearing from both your stories i get the sense that you're both super well traveled and very flexible and, and you know both of these actually tie into my next question about the COVID-19 pandemic, where we really have to see that flexibility, the government has shifted and changed so many little things, tinkered new policies every week. In your individual minds, you know, we're almost on the, and we're hoping we're on the sort of the end of COVID being a a major problem phase. But how did you see the government's job? How do they do in rolling out the COVID-19 international student policy? And perhaps uh, I'll challenge you to, an- to answer in the form of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So maybe I'll start with you, Mayori. What did you see? And yeah, how did it impact your, your practice as an international student advisor?
2: So in terms, uh, it's just been chaotic for everyone. So I, I do want to acknowledge just just how challenging it's been on all fronts and not having an insider's view of what's going on with IRCC and what's going on at the different embassies across the world. I I am mindful of that, that there's a lot that we don't know and I I wanna give grace. For that. And at the same time, yeah, some of there there is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and in terms of some of the good, I think that some of the policies, let's say, impacting current international students. So new international students, I think that's a whole other ballgame. Those that were trying to get a study permit, to, trying to come to Canada during the pandemic, that was a whole other interesting ballgame. But for those who were already here, I think some of the positive things that were done initially were, for example, giving the ability for students to work even though they weren't enrolled in classes. So we know that international students need to be full-time in order to work and allowing them the ability to work even though their classes were stopped due to COVID and so on for that short period of time. I think that was a good call and really definitely helped international students during that time if I could just jump to like the bad or the ugly is like, I really wish we could have seen that extended, right? COVID, the pandemic didn't stop. We're still dealing with it. We're potentially going to come upon a fourth wave. I hope not, but that's what people are saying. It's like the end is not really in, in, truly in sight in in the imminent future. So, and the impacts of this, we know are gonna be long lasting. So it would really be good, better to see some more leeway for international students to be able to work and recover financially, because of course, their families in their home countries, what we're hearing is their families in their home countries are really struggling and are not able to support themselves, let alone support the student who is here and couldn't return home. So, you know, the good was that that policy was there for a little bit. The bad is that it's not there right now and students desperately need it. And that's what we're hearing from so many of them. One other one that I'll mention is, I think, the extension of the PGWP temporarily, the open work permit that they can do for another 18 months. And I know the deadline's coming up for that to extend it. Of course, recognizing that international students who had the PGWP couldn't benefit from obtaining that Canadian work experience that they need, hopefully to for their PR application, and they couldn't get that because things were shut down. So extending that, although I do want to say that that really was due to a lot of advocacy from grassroots organizations that were really lobbying and advocating for that change. So I'm glad that IRCC was listening and extended that policy. And I know that that's benefiting a lot of students. In terms of, you know, the ugly, I'm just going to skip right to that, <laughs> is I think for new students, it's just been, it's been ugly. It's been really hard. And I think despite I, IRCC's, you know, best efforts, part of that is I think out, outside maybe of IRCC's control. That's why I started by saying, I don't know how these decisions are made around when policies are announced or things that are rolled out. Every single thing we've seen come out, we find out on the day of international students are panicked. We as, as post-secondary institutions have no heads up as to what's going to happen. The announcement is made and students are panicked around, when can I travel? Can I travel? What's the exemption? It's not clear. You know, what do I need? So, so there's that for those that have a study permit approval and are trying to come. It's great that eventually that rule was in place, that as long as you have a study permit, you're attending a you know, designated learning institution, all of those things. And the quarantine measures also, if you met all of those things, you can come in. Th- those things were positive for sure. But I think the way in which those announcements were rolled out, released suddenly and, and without much clarity, but then the announcement was made as this big thing, here's what we're doing, but without the clarity, I think that's just caused a lot of confusion and added anxiety. And then more ugly for students that are trying to move apply for a study permit and so on. We're just seeing, and I think we're going to talk about this in the episode maybe, but continued like really high rates of refusals. And I know that's an ongoing problem. It's not unique to COVID, but I think I think that the templated refusals in the context of COVID has just made it even worse for our new international students processing times of course have just been like super delayed even for those applying through SDS stream and and other streams where they're promised a certain amount of time of processing and then that's not happening and I think again this is adding a lot of stress and pressure to international students so those are just some of the things I'd say I've noticed in this last over one year of going through this.
1: Well, I just want to touch on two things before I pass it on to Rav In In terms of the templated refusals, we're going to have a special episode dedicated to that. Um, I'm actually, I've I've uncovered some interesting litigation and and the system by which they're templating the refusals. So hopefully we're going to be able to bring that to the forefront. I'm actually uh, just about to be counsel on a case that the Department of Justice is trying to introduce all this information to. So hopefully we're gonna shed light on it and the students I think will benefit because yes, it's coming down the line to templated GCMS, uh, less GCMS notes, more templated refusals and very little factual analysis in the the decisions and that unfortunately has become a standard. On your point of communication, I think that is a huge issue. We're seeing right now, especially during COVID, it seems like there are small bubbles of those people who are in the know, and there's so many more internal hidden memos, and those are causing so many problems. LJ, I recently actually had a um, member of the lawyer insurance fund call me about a complaint against an advisor, an immigration lawyer, that they didn't tell the tell their student that they had to come within, you know, less than 90 days before the start of their studies. And apparently that this is some internal policy. Um, So the fact that these policies are all running behind the scenes and every visa office is a little bit different and airlines are, you know, interpreting them differently has has caused a lot of of problems. So I just want to give some light to what Moira is saying. We absolutely feel it uh, from the practitioner side as well. Ravneet, your thoughts.
3: Thank you so much, Mary, for unpacking a lot of that information. A few things that I wanted to kind of catch base on was that I think the the good that we saw that came out was IRCC was making efforts and trying to introduce these policies that they were trying to help the students out in The background, they were not really thinking about the various different groups of students that those policies were going to be affecting. For example, we had them roll out the approval in principle back last year. And a lot of the students, whether they were relying on the advice of people that were not authorized to give immigration advice, particularly students that were outside Canada, were under the impression that we've gotten this approval in principle and we're set to get that study permit approval. And they started their online studies back from outside Canada, not knowing that there could be a refusal down the lane for them. So that was one thing that uh, was rolled out with a good intention from the IRCC's perspective, but not knowing how it's going to trickle down in terms of affecting all those students that are going to start their studies online. And we've had students that have completed their entire programs online. without having that study permit approval. And if they do end up with a study permit refusal at the end of that uh, completion of that program, obviously they cannot apply for that post-graduation work permit. So I guess things were rolled out, the policies were rolled out, not realizing the effects that it was going to have on students and different groups of students. For example, graduate students that are only here for a year for an eight-month program or a year-long program. Another issue that was recently raised was that I had sent out an email to Immigration rat Box to inquire about how is IRCC going to deal with these students that are going to complete their entire programs online from outside Canada. They've made an exemption and they've said that you can apply for a post-graduation work permit as long as you've received an approval of your study permit. However, if they have intention to apply for permanent residency, are they able to get those additional points for for, um, Canadian education? And their response was that at this time, these students are not eligible to receive those points, which is something that wasn't taken. Obviously, that wasn't a point that was considered at that point in time, but then... We as advisors from time to time would get questions about students applying for the PNP programs. How would they show their intention that they're going to be in a province when they've never set foot in that province during their entire study program? How are they going to be finding employment in Canada? Another issue that kind of trickles out of this discussion would be applying for a post-graduation work permit from outside Canada will give you the LOI. However, in order for you to travel to Canada, you need to have a valid job offer how on earth a person sitting outside Canada is going to be able to get a job offer from an employer in Canada and telling them that I don't have the work permit, but I will have the work permit as soon as I land in Canada. And a lot of the employers are not going to be okay with that statement from an applicant who is sitting outside Canada. And this has been raised multiple times because IRCC has said spousal open work permit holders with an LOI without a job offer could travel to Canada. However, people that have a LOI for a post-graduation work permit approval cannot travel to Canada unless they have a job offer. So it's just that a lot of the things were, I guess, rolled out and maybe in a rush or not with having proper discussion at the back end with policy. And we are fortunate enough to have the support of IRCC outreach officers where anytime we see a concern like that, we reach out to them and then they help us convey that to, to the policy branch. However, sometimes those responses, those decisions, those discussions take place after a certain period of time. And by that time, a student has been impacted in a way that we cannot go back and fix their situation. So one example that I think of in the situation would be the co-op work permit um, applications that, in 2020 were taking six, seven, eight months. And students were kind of put in a position where they had to not accept their co-op offers of employment because they did not have a valid co-op work committee. Couldn't go down to the border to get one, and they had to wait for their online applications. And it, re- it involved a lot of back and forth and sending a lot of inquiries to IRCC outreach officers, to the Immigration Advisory Committee, to let the students use their study permit work authorization to engage in that co-op employment. It did. The changes did come. Policies were announced a little later. However, it did impact a lot of students in terms of where they were not able to do their co-op terms uh, back in summer of 2020, and they had to postpone their studies. So just kind of wrapping everything up is, uh, um, just wanted to kind of mention that, yes, IRCC had a good intention in terms of rolling out these policies. However, all different groups of students, particularly graduate students, were not taken into consideration into a lot of the the policies, a lot of the, the kind of the instructions that were rolled out. And also students that left Canada were left in, in, in a position where they were anxious to return back to Canada. However, there were not clear instructions in terms of what, is required of what is required of the DLI in order for them to facilitate their entry back to Canada. And if we're looking at the scenario right now, we have students that left Canada, but then they did not apply for a TRV from within Canada and they're outside Canada, And just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at the processing time from, I think it was Pakistan and it was about 400 some days. And these students are going to be stuck outside Canada, all the DLIs shifting into in-person studies in September this year. And the students are not going to be able to make it back in time to resume their studies in, in, in fall of this year. So it's just that a lot of efforts have been made, but then there's still so much more lacking and it's just not having the clear messaging to different organizations, for example, CBSA, IRCC, and the airlines. We have had multiple run-ins with the airline where they're interpreting things in a different way. However, CBSA is saying something different and then IRCC is saying something different. So it's just that the responses through the different organizations sometimes don't align and that puts us as advisors in a very, very bad spot to tell the students to refer to the information on IRCC website, And then reach out to CBSA and receive a different response from what we are telling them. And then a lot of the times we're telling them to be prepared and we find out that they don't, they're not asked any questions and they enter Canada. However, on the other side, there are some students that get grilled at the port of entry with questions and denied entry, even though they meet the requirements to enter Canada. So it's just that the absence of that clear messaging throughout different organizations is something that's putting... The students in a very bad situation and us as advisors, when we advise them all these rapid changes and not having to have any type of messaging from IRCC or from CBS that these changes are coming if the institutions can be prepared ahead of time. And then putting the students in that panic situation and reaching out to the advising offices and trying to figure things out. So that's something that I think something that needs to be given attention um, in in regards to to dealing with the student population and especially new students that are planning their trips to come to Canada for the first time. And having this experience is something that we wouldn't want them to have a negative experience to begin with. So I guess that if we could avoid this, I think that that's where a lot of work needs to be done.
0: Wow, that's a lot to unpack, but thank you. First thing is, I wanna say two things. You're right. Really, there's a lot of things to be said about two words, policy or unintended consequences. So for those who have studied public policy, when you roll something out, there is an objective. But as we know, in real life, there's a lot of gray and a lot of unintended consequences does do happen. And covid was quite the monkey wrench into the engine. And it's basically given us a situation where there's a lot of unknown, even for the policy makers themselves and the ones who implement. And it really ties back into what Mayuri said earlier and what Rabneet has been hacking on all along, which is communication. Sounds like from time to time, the left hand doesn't really talk to the right hand. Just, I think it was today or was it yesterday, Stephen Mearns, another immigration lawyer Posted something on Twitter, which was very, if I may, revelatoire. What it was was an internal manual for CBSA officers. I'm not sure if you guys saw it. It was very interesting. It basically talks about what if a student arrives maybe 35 days ahead of the start of school. A lot of us in this group. We've been telling our, like Will and I have been telling our clients to try to arrive within 30 days of the start of your school. It's never written in any part of IRCC's website, nor on CBSA. This is just a rule of thumb. So think of it from the perspective of, let's say, the layperson who has no representation, who has never meet, met amazing people like Ravneet or Mayuri, who would have told them to not arrive too early. So there, there are a lot of problems in terms of communication, but Going back to Mayuri's point about giving them grace, we don't know what's going on. There's a lot of to and from in the background. So, you know, we do, uh, acknowledge that, and we are thankful uh, that there are a lot of folks over at IRCC that are open to communication. And as Will can attest, uh, just this uh, spring we had the opportunity to speak to amazing folks over at the policy department at IRCC, where you know they were very open to our comments in regards to the rollout of several programs. And rest assured, we did give them a, a you know our thoughts about the the status of temporary residents in terms of how they can transition to a more durable status in Canada, such as permanent residence, and how difficult it was before COVID, and how even more difficult it has become in the time of crisis. But listen, oftentimes in my own experiences with international students is that you have very young, impressionable minds that unfortunately run into third parties. And whether they be agents or employers, or even colleagues or fellow students who might not always be providing the best advice, now, standing from the position you are in right now, what advice would you give to students who are just starting out in Canada and what should they do to get themselves prepared for the journey and pathway through studies now that things are kind of like, you know, returning to normal, but as Ravni properly put it, we're not really out of the woods yet. How about, how about we start with um, Ravni this time?
3: I think we try to the institutions that i've been worked i've worked at we've tried to organize sessions and seminars for students and just kind of uh, making them aware that there is a service on campus that they can rely on for immigration advice and the immigration advisors are the only people that they should be going to to get immigration advice is the is something that we try to to get across to our students um just because when students are coming from outside canada some of them are under the impression that the agents that they're working with or the representatives back home, they're, they're not aware that they have, these, they have to be licensed professionals in Canada in order to provide the immigration advice. So we try to do our bit in terms of making sure that the students are getting that information and making sure that they are getting the communications from our office on a regular basis, that they are made aware of the fact that they should be relying on the advice of immigration advisors and not their friend colleague or a family friend who has gone through the same process before, which could have been a year ago, two years ago, or 10 years ago, or even a few months ago, things change. And we just uh, try to make sure that the students are aware of the fact that they they have a service on campus and that they they rely on us for that immigration advice and making sure that they are not getting the advice from from people that are not licensed to provide that immigration advice to To them, and a lot of the times we would meet with a student that would have no idea that there are services uh, offered on campus. And uh, to my surprise, in my experience, I've met with a student, and this was a few years ago, where they said, "I didn't know that international student advising was a thing on campus, and I didn't come and see an advisor for the the first two or three years of my uh, my my studies at the university." And I was surprised. To hear that because we try we try to make every possible effort that we can. And a lot of the times students would unsubscribe to the newsletters and sub- subscribe to the email notifications but we try we try to make sure that we are doing our bit in making sure that the students are not falling at the hands of, uh, of people that are not that are not regulated or that are not authorized to provide the advice to them.
0: Well, thanks for that, Um, uh, Ravneed. And uh, how about you, Mayuri? What advice would you share at this stage of the game? We're about, I want to say, about a month away uh, from (laughs) D-Day. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's actually nice to hear from another advisor from, uh, you know, another institution that's really echoing um, some of the things that uh, I, I experience in, in my role are kind of expressing that they they didn't know about immigration advising and some of them who maybe have gotten to a certain point like past their first second year and they and they just didn't know and, and part of it is the challenge for larger institutions is of course being a large institution and the the just all of the information that's available to students that's being pushed at them so it is That is one of the challenges of of communicating to international students, in particular, that advising exists and international student advising exists and what it is. So part of what we do, similar to Ravneet, is really the outreach piece and letting international students know even before they arrive. So part of what we have started to incorporate is supporting students even with the study permit application process. So of course, like we can't represent them, we're providing them essentially with summary legal advice, but we are letting them know right from the outset to say that international student advisors exist here at, at this university, we are licensed. So I love to like really emphasize that point in all presentations, in all appointments, I'm like, I am licensed. And here's why I'm telling you I'm licensed. It's not just like a word that I'm just throwing out there. Here's why it's important that I'm licensed. I, I've studied, I, I've, I'm certified in this area. And I also like to emphasize to them, find someone who's experienced in this particular area of immigration law. So like, it's not just any lawyer. I think sometimes, you know, the way that media portrays like lawyers, legal representatives, consultants, paralegals, what have you is like, oh, they just know all subject matters. And that's not true, right? So also (laughs) letting them know that you need to speak to someone who is experienced in immigration law and that you are entitled also. So part of what we're doing is also educating Students on how they maybe go, how they might go about choosing a legal representative right? Like that education piece, I think is important. So I'm thinking particularly of students who are newly applying, and might be, you know, communicating with agents or representatives or whoever, and letting them know, like, if you are going to be working with someone on your application, these are the things you should consider. You're allowed to ask them questions, you're allowed to ask for a copy of your application and a final copy of your paperwork. In fact, you should And you must have that for yourself. You should know when things are submitted and you should should have ownership of your file. This person is going to help you do those things, but you should also have ownership of your file. Of course, that's challenging, especially we're thinking about our younger students, right? You're 17 years old, you're 18 years old, you're just kind of trying to get going with your adult life. And I think international students, more than any other group, have to grow up really fast. They have to be really organized. They have to be really ahead of the game, plan 20 thousand steps ahead towards their PTWP and know what they're going to do and all that stuff. But trying to like sort of empower them with that information and let them know, yeah, yes, you're young. Yes, you're just starting out on your educational journey for the, for the many of them that we're speaking to, but you, here's, here's how you can kind of take the lead on that and you should take the lead on that. And letting them know, oh, one of the, the tips I like to give them is if anyone is telling you, Your application is going to get 100% approved if you do XYZ, walk the other direction. (laughs) So I literally put it in those terms to them. I'm like, do not believe anyone that's going to tell you that your application is going to get approved if you do this and that they are probably not good for their word. Please walk away. A good legal representative, an experienced legal representative is gonna inform you of your options. Is it gonna inform you how to strengthen your application? What are your strong points? How do we address the weaker points? And they're gonna let you know that at the end of the day, it is up to the discretion of the IRCC officer. They have to make a decision based on the evidence you present and so on. And they should be talking to you like this. Cause if they say, just, you know, put these things together and I'm going to do it. And don't worry, you're going to study in Canada. It's not a good sign. Big red flag. So I think talking to students about what are the red flags, what are the signs when, you know, someone is competent, experienced, and all of that, I think will be helpful. And I'm finding it helpful um, in sharing that information in our webinars. And as Ravneet touched on, we're really emphasizing attending our immigration advising workshops and webinars. We're really, really, really trying on making ourselves as accessible as possible. And I think some of the ways that we're trying to do that, especially uh, more recently, is um, we know that sometimes, as Randy pointed out, newsletters, people unsubscribing, whatever. So we're trying to figure out like, what are the ways we can connect with our international students? How do we stay hip and relevant? So like, let's get on TikTok, let's get on Reels, and like, let's do things that are truly, that are giving like snippets of information, letting them know immigration advising exists. Like there's creative ways that we can put out content for students and kind of flag for them some important points that they need to know about following their basic study permit conditions. That would be good. And even like a TikTok on, hey, like, do you need a license? You know, you should get your advice from a licensed representative not your family member, you know, or not your, your friends. Sometimes I like to joke in webinars, like even if your pet is offering advice, do not listen to them, even if they're really cute and persuasive. Like, so I just try to get things across that way. And I think students are mostly receptive. The challenge is always going to be how to reach as many students as possible. And I think like repeating it like a broken record. So it's like ingrained in their minds. (laughs)
1: I want to respond on two points. One, I think it's just incredible from both Ravneet and Maori how much they speak to the to genuinely and and you know all the efforts they do to help students and and that is their goal and I know and and, and maybe you know it might be difficult for Ravneet or Maori to speak to this but I know how much Immigration advisors and institutions also have to push back against institutional powers and to try and get their part of the budget, to try and, you know, expand their team, to try and get some of the internal rules changed that might pose as immigration barriers, but general councils don't understand them or the school just doesn't want to hear them. Like these are all very, very real issues internally within the schools that's, that are difficult and, you know, my hat's off to all the, the internal battles that have to be fought as well. And and, and, and um, that that's one thing. The other one I have to say is, you know, Maori's point about the challenges that international students are facing and, and how so many of them are young and, and vulnerable. I mean, I think we forget that as well when we're carving policies and, and, and the one policy, I know uh, LJ you've heard me say this time and time again, I almost mentioned it like a broken record as, as Mayuri said, you know, change that requirement to be in full-time studies to apply for postgraduate work permit, like just change it. You know, the first semester's Often the hardest uh, for many many students like there's it's so arbitrary that it's the last semester like please get rid of it it just doesn't serve the, 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 the system and, and I know LJ we presented directly to the policymakers on why that was such a bad policy
0: I mean speaking uh, as a former international student myself not in Canada but in another country coming out fresh off the boat as he uh, <laughs> mentioned my first semester over at the National University of Singapore I physically got sick the first month, not because I got infected or anything. It was because of the mental and emotional stress that, you know, homesickness brings about. So there's a lot of variables that are not necessarily within the control of an international student. So I, you know, you may be a broken record, but that doesn't make it untrue. will keep, keep repeating it.
1: Well, we'll get there. But I mean, we do have some positive news on the postgraduate work permit which we'll talk about in our, in our next section on the data drop. But let's go to the last question on this section. I mean, again, transitioning to what, what both of you have spoken to, Revneet and Mayori, and maybe I'll start with Ravneet uh, on this question. The pandemic has had a huge impact on mental health. And and I think we have to talk about two healths. And I thank you, Revneet, for actually, before this call reminding me, it's the student health, but also the advisor health and travel restrictions have made it very, very difficult for many students to leave Canada and return. So they haven't seen their families now. You are know, heading upon almost a couple of years, I think, a year and a half and then a little bit longer. Having to deal with the, the financial and sometimes health consequences of the pandemic, either getting COVID themselves or having family members abroad with COVID. I read a really troubling report from One Voice Canada during the pandemic, uh, where it discussed the tragic effect that this has had, especially on South Asian students. And that and that piece talked about you know, the rise in, 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 in cases of, of suicide and uh, very, very difficult mental health turmoil. So as Canada starts welcoming back students in the fall, what do you think needs to be done? And you can mention it either you know, on an institutional level or on a government level or or, or 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 many different levels, but what needs to be done to improve mental health? And you know, who should do it? What should be done? I know it's a big question. We're probably not going to be able to tackle it in, in brief answers, but maybe we can start the conversation here. So, Ravneet, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Bill. I think I've personally seen a lot of clients of my own in that situation, not just students, where the pandemic had put them in a situation where they had sick family members back home and even uh, their parents are passing away and them trying to figure things out whether to leave Canada because they will not be able to return back. Um, And it's just had had such a big impact on the mental health of these individuals, students, and especially when they're young students, um, not not being able to go back home and then being able to, um, and when making, when planning the trip, having that discussion with the advisors and us letting them know that there's no guarantee, like we cannot guarantee that you're gonna be able to return back even if you have a valid study permit, a valid visa, especially with with, uh, with the situation that's going on in India right now. A lot of our Indian students got stuck in that, uh, with that direct travel ban. And now when, with them considering to travel back is posing such a big challenge for them because they, they're they trying to navigate how to get back to Canada and then trying to figure out what are the different requirements in all these different countries that they're going to have to have their layover in. And then, whether they need to quarantine there for a few days. So it's just that it's very, very tough. And us hearing as advisors to all these stories and trying to help these students navigate also sometimes takes a toll on us as as their advisors, just because at at, at some point in time, you do get connected on a personal level with some of the students just because of the situations that they're in. And to kind of answer your question, well, I think a lot needs to be done. The institutions are trying their best. I can't speak for all the institutions, but from the experiences that I've had, are trying a lot more just because of the the pandemic, the situation that it has put in with the limited in-person contact that we can have with students. I think it's putting them in that situation where they're able to not share too much with the advisors just because we're on a screen and not in an in-person environment with them, things were a lot different when we could see a student's body language and they would come into our office and we could tell the signs and they're not feeling good. And uh, there's there's multiple different ways that would kind of give us those signs and we would be able to kind of uh, dissect the situation a little bit differently. And On a Zoom call, a student doesn't show up, they don't show up and um, that's kind of the end of the call there a lot of the times. So I feel that the institutions are doing their bit and from the government side of things, I think the students are bringing in a lot of revenue and they are kind of a a force that are driving the economy forward. So I think a lot more needs to be done from, from from the government institutions as well in terms of having some additional support for the students. Uh, so that they they could um, access these resources and especially for for people coming from if i were to speak from from my um kind of uh, culture mental health is kind of not that openly spoken about um, especially in in the indian culture people don't really talk about it they're not that open about it so that's why a lot of the students will not disclose um the feeling their feelings or the the issues that they're they're going through and it would be a lot different for from a student coming from a different culture where they would be more open about discussing things that are impacting their mental health. So I think a lot more cl- uh, need to be there in addition to the institutional supports that are there. And um, us as advisors, we try to help students out and try to put them in touch with the resources, but we're not mental health counselors. So there's there's a line where we have to to draw as advisors as well. But we we try our level best to make sure that they are put into those put into contact with those resources and that they are aware that those resources are there. So even before the students are here, anytime we do a pre-departure session for these students that are sitting in their home country, we try to make sure that we're including the wellness resources in the session so that they're aware that these are the resources that they could access on campus. And if they are not comfortable with visiting somebody on campus, there are some additional resources off-campus that they could access. And I think the more these resources are going to be readily available to them, the better it is going to be, especially considering the situation that we're in right now with the pandemic, people being in, in their homes and also making the shift back to campus. I think it's going to be a lot for a lot of the individuals that were having the challenges beforehand. So this year and a half has kind of changed a lot of things and I think it's going to need a lot of work and we need to maybe gradually work towards it not uh, rather than having something to change drastically uh, in, in when we're looking at the mental health of students and also, also the staff as well.
1: Thank you, Ravneet and Maori. I mean, you've come from a perspective where I, or if I believe I'm not mistaken, that you used to be a refugee lawyer as well before you did a lot of the stuff with international students. So you've you've seen it from from different angles as well within the immigration system. What are your thoughts on on how the system can can better assist students and maybe what the role of advisors and student uh, and, and institutions can can be different to help?
2: Yeah, it's such a good and and important and necessary question. I think that. Even in the best of circumstances, international students face significant mental health uh, challenges and just adjusting in a new country in itself, like, you know, um, presents many opportunities, but yeah, many anxieties, many stressors, many challenges and just even being on campus with like all kinds of people and like trying to make new friends, but having maybe a little bit of a language barrier or some cultural differences, like learning new things, like all of this is already challenging for international students we know in the best of circumstances and putting COVID in the mix of that has just been really 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 demanding and and so hard for them and Rabneet has spoke to some of the examples that I've seen as well where students are really they're just they're so torn like they are here and they're some of them are here unable to go back home for various reasons whether it's travel restrictions financial limitations there's like different reasons why people haven't been able to go home and like I've, I've talked to students who are you know just heartbroken and feeling hopeless and not sure of like what to do (laughs) one student said to me like that they literally you know ended up not going to school for a bit and were just in their room isolated day after day and couldn't bring themselves by the time they talked to me like several months had passed that they were they were in that position and so there are students that are really struggling and i know i know we know this and it's it's really tough on them and in terms of how the institution Um, can help, institutions can help is, again, I think on the outreach piece, for sure, constantly messaging for students, like, what does it mean to talk about your mental health, like identifying also, like, what it might mean to not feel good, or what are feelings of isolation, depression, anxiety, sleep deprivation, like all of these things you might be going through and naming that and saying that there are supports for that. And I think like that constant messaging Is going to be really important, Um, of course, having the resources there, so I know that there are lots of um, thankfully resources that have popped up in, in again I can't speak for all institutions, either, but in my experience that are available for students also that are abroad, one of the challenges was people who are here in Ontario, for example, are only licensed to practice and advise students who are in Ontario. So what were we going to do about students who were abroad? And, you know, uh, the license didn't cover that jurisdiction, how is that going to be handled? And so, you know, at our institution, for example, there, they contracted with a company called Keep Me Safe, and students could call into that line and have, I think, some language support in their language as well. And And so there's some measures that have been taken that have been positive to try to like, provide as much support as possible. And I think like continuing to do that, I think like having campaigns, ongoing campaigns about mental health is going to be really important. I think educating, having all of us advisors, professors, frontline support staff, all being talking about and being aware of I'm putting at the front front line that international students in particular are facing like unique challenges and how are we going to like identify and support them through that brainstorming through that I think we're all working on that too as we think about welcoming even more students uh, to campus in September, and I think on a government level will you know I think (laughs) I'm interested to hear more about all of the advocacy that's gone behind like advocating for part time terms to count towards PGP PGWP eligibility, that's a, that's one. Like the pressure for students to be full-time, uh, you know, each term apart from their last semester in order to be el- um, eligible for the PGWP, how are we going to say here, do this for your mental health, self-care, all of this, and then tell them they need to take a full-time course load in order to get their PGWP? It doesn't add up. They can't do it. You know, and if they're going to need to take time and access counseling and do things to try to support themselves, if they're really struggling, then maybe a reduced course load is what they need. But they're not going to do that if that's going to jeopardize their PGWP. And it's like a vicious it puts them in this really, really just awful situation. And and as, as advisors, it's really tough for us to say, on the one hand, You know, you should get mental health supports and help and like do what's best for you and in supporting that and then say, oh, by the way, you also need to take a full time course load or otherwise, you know, (laughs) there's going to be these pretty serious consequences. One of the things that I'm, you know, we'd like to incorporate, I think more as well on an institutional level is also educating international students about student accessibility services, because you can have a reduced like full time, you know, I don't know when IRCC's policy will change if ever, but in terms of part time studies, but perhaps we can encourage students who are, you know, struggling in particular ways to consider getting accommodations and accessing their university, their post secondary institutions accessibility services, understanding how they might be able to get accommodations and therefore benefit from being able to say, okay, you know, let's say at nine credits is full time, but if I have accommodations, six credits will count as full time. And I think educating our international students on and and destigmatizing not only mental health, but like, yeah, asking for accommodations, like it's okay. I said to publicly in a webinar the other day that I wish I asked for accommodations in law school, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety you know, I, it was really stressful and I had lots of personal issues that impacted my ability to perform. I never asked for accommodations and I wish I did because that extra hour on an exam, you know, some time in an individual room as opposed to writing an exam in, you know, with 30 other people around would, I'm sure, would have improved my performance, but I didn't. And so now I share that story with international students to say, you can ask for help, you can ask for accommodations, explore these options. And I think the more that we try to get those, these types of messages across, the more we can support their mental health and wellness.
1: Thank you so much, Ravneet, both both you and uh and, and, and Maori for sharing your, your stories and, 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 and doing it so personally. I wanna also call out. Adding on to what both of you said, in, in, in on the piece on mental health, that, and this is for all the, uh, you know, we know, I know we have a lot of listeners who, who maybe themselves are not immigrants or, or, or international students, and maybe are just, you know, from third parties or, or public, you know, institutions interested in what what students are thinking. The microaggressions also are real, are very very real, and. You know, be it within an institution or with stakeholders, it could be the professor, the students in class with, the employers that they find work from, the landlords that they have to discuss rent with, service providers, even going to the restaurant to order food. I think one of the biggest myths we have to break apart is that of the cash cow international student. And it may be for Canada itself as a country that international students are cash cows. But if you flip it around for the student themselves, many times the funds that they have or they have had to show on a study permit application are far from being tucked away in some magical, you know, safety deposit box or GIC. That Those funds come from so, much, so many sweat and tears, so many relationships and are so precarious. And, you know, especially uh, in their day-to-day interactions, uh, I find that sometimes there's this assumption that they, they just have money and, and they have bought their way here and, and that couldn't be further from the truth.
0: It's such okay. a nice bookend, actually, when it's, you know, Mayuri talked about mental health. I, too, actually wish that I had sought accommodation when I was in law school. Not sure if I talked to you about this, Will and Mayuri, but, uh, you know, just like a little disclosure publicly is that I actually worked full time, 35 to 40 hours while I was in law school, while taking on full credit, and I was supporting myself. It was it was not a pretty situation in terms of my marks. It really... Affected my marks. It really affected my performance, and it gradually creeped in and affected my own uh, mental health and emotional well-being. And uh, you know, there is a stigma that comes uh, comes with it. And uh, I try to be conscious when I talk to my clients about it. In that, you know, I want to make them at least be aware that these resources are available to them. And that's why, you know, in my dealings lately, I've been trying to direct them to Mayuri if they're at the DLI, And now I know uh, Ravneed, I I would direct them to their international student advisors in order to actually, you know, just know that, you know, within their radar, that there are these supports that are available and that, you know, there are strategies. And, uh, you know, if you're an international student, reach out to your representative, reach out to your international student advisors, they're there to help and support you.